Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. I'll tie back in with uh, what Chris said a while ago about why we read Matthew. Uh, the short answer is this is Christmas season. But, um, <laughs> but the longer, I'll, I'll try to tie it in later, Chris, just, just to make you happy. But Ecclesiastes, latter part of chapter 8, mostly chapter 9, is our text today. And I was looking around here, he saw me looking, and uh, somebody stole not only my water, but my prop. So if whoever stole that, one of you music people could bring that back up right now, I'd appreciate it, but uh, we, we could let it go, I suppose. When, in, in southern Indiana, there's a shop that uh, Marsha and I sometimes will go to, and it's a shop that says, Life is Good. You probably have seen it before, they have t-shirts and and, uh, you know, all sorts of kind of different odds and ends and, and cups, which I had one right up here that said, uh, God is good. And on that is a picture of a little guy, stick figure, sitting in a chair, leaning back, and he's happy. All life is good. All life is wonderful. Contrast that with the, with the statue of the thinker. And you're familiar with that, the guy sitting on a, on a stool or something, a bench, and he's, he's got his head down, he's got his elbow on his knee, he's got his, ch- his chin and his his palm, and he is thinking, he's considering. And when we contrast those two things, uh, we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we find that, that in the midst of life's problems and mysteries and perplexities of all kinds, Solomon is calling for us to ponder, not flee. Uh, the life is good thing is interesting, and we're going to see some of that, how that it might even fit to some degree in a few moments. But, uh, but the idea is here we are called to think, and Ecclesiastes is a thinking person's book. It calls us to look at the issues of life and not run away, not hide, not ignore, but to give, give deep consideration into what these things mean and how we should live in the light of that. Most people do not want to think. Most Christians do not want to think. Most want to flee. Most want to ignore. They don't want to think. And so Ecclesiastes kind of flies in the face of where most of us probably want to be most of the time. But Solomon doesn't let us up. Solomon won't let us go. He is going to go ahead and make us think anyway. Chapters 9 on to the end of the book doesn't really give us any more new material per se. Uh, he's going back over the, some of the same stuff, but he's adding layers of interest, layers of, of meaning as he does so. And so uh, we're looking at some of the same themes, but hopefully going a little deeper as we do so. In this chapter, mainly chapter 9, he is going to give us two unchangeable truths that will mark out and determine how we live. How we deal with those two unchangeable truths will determine how we live life on this planet. And so he's looking at that with us. And the first unchangeable truth is one we looked at before, uh, I think even last week, and that is that God is sovereign. And I'm going to back up to chapter 8, verse 16. For that, 8.16, he says this, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. So that kind of is where we left off last week. Solomon is saying that there is so much about life we don't know, so much we cannot discover. If we've spent night and day, 24-7, all the time, pondering these things, we're not going to discover many of the things that we'd like to discover. But then he moves on to chapter 9, and he says this, For I have taken all this 
to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hate. Anything awaits him. As he moves forward on this one, he says, but in this life that we live, in which we can't always unravel the mysteries, we know one thing for sure. We who know him, we who live wisely, we who are righteous, are in the hand of God. And with that, he settles in and talks about the sovereignty of God. We're in the hand of God. He picks up some more of this in, chapter, in verse 11 when he takes it a little further. He said, I, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise or wealth to the discerning or favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at, at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So he's looking at life here and he says, there's certain things that ought to guarantee success. Uh, people depend on these things. They, they think they will be successful because of these things. Five different things he mentions here are, are at, uh, that, that ought to give us success. He speaks of strength. The, the, and he speaks of being fast, and he speaks of being wise, and he speaks of being discerning, and he speaks of being learned. All these things should guarantee success for us, but they do not guarantee those things. Instead, he says, you know, uh, you know, time and chance happens to all people. The word chance there is probably better translated circumstances. In other words, just because you have these abilities does not guarantee you're going to do well. It, that there's too many variables. And those variables are controlled by the hand of God. I, th I often thought of when I've gone to different concerts or musical shows of one kind or the other, and I hear an outstanding singer or two who uh, is usually singing the songs of other famous people, but they're actually doing it much better than the famous people. They really have great voices. They, they're wonderful. And I've often thought, why are they just, you know, these going around these little sideshows when, uh, when the famous people who can't sing near as well are famous and have big mansions somewhere in the top of the charts. Uh, why is that the case? Well, time and chance. Who knows? Who, who, can, who can say that because you are absolutely great, you're going to be successful, or because you're mediocre, you'll, you'll fail? Who's to say? These are the kinds of things he's pondering. I think it's one of the reasons why the American Idol type shows and all those clones have caught the fascination of many people uh, we, we've discovered that there are people out there who are fantastic at what they do, but nobody knows about them. And so we're, we're giving them those shots on television and whatnot to, to show how good they are and, and how, what comes of that. And yet, even those that might do very well on American Idol or, or America Got Talent often do not do very well as far as success is concerned. Why? Well, there's many variables. And he says time and chance overtake them all. But it doesn't discourage him in a sense because he realizes we're in the hand of God. Someone tried to explain it this way. If you were around the, the, the tip of Greenland, there are many icebergs of various sizes and many, many floating ice uh, particles. If you were just to observe, you'd find many of the surface ice is going one direction while the bigger icebergs uh, are going another direction. And the reason why is because the surface winds move the ice on the surface around one direction, but down below is the powerful currents of the, of the ocean. 
And, and most icebergs are 90% underwater. And they're moved by those currents. And so what we observe on the surface and what may actually move us on the surface, the surface winds of life, are not the big picture that controls life, that which is the powerful current of God does. Let me say it another way. Uh, one of the greatest thinkers in Christianity today, I believe, is D.A. Carson. And Carson spent a, a, a lot of time thinking about this issue of the sovereignty of God and responsibility of mankind. He even wrote a book called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. Very intense book, very heavy book. But his conclusion was this, that, that there are many things in life we don't get and they, they lie restless in our hands. Uh, we don't know uh, about what, what is uh, right or wrong, what's going to happen. We just can't put it together in our own thinking, in our own mind. And he says it's got like a jigsaw puzzle. You, some of you do those puzzles. You're, you're a little bit batty if you do, in my humble opinion. But uh, you, you do those jigsaw puzzles and you get them out. And, you know, about a 25-piecer is about what I can handle. But some of you like it, those 2,000-piece puzzles. And what if you get out one of those gigantic puzzles for Christmas? It says in the box, 2,000 pieces. And you lay it out. And when you get done, you find that 1,000 pieces are gone. Well, now you've got in front of you this, this puzzle with all these big gaps in the puzzle. And he says that's kind of what life is like when we're trying to figure it out. We've got so many pieces, but we've got so many pieces missing. Now, does that frustrate you? Does that cause you to throw up your hands in, in frustration? And he says, no, not if you believe that God is in charge. Not if you believe that you are in the hand of God of God. Now before I leave this particular section, and before I go over here and get this water Brian brought to me uh, for some reason, uh, that's not my cup, but it is lovely. Let's see, that's nice. Um, whoever has my cup, bring that back. We're going to do fingerprinting later. Um, in all seriousness, going back before we leave the sovereignty of God issue, where would you think this? So if everything I just said just blew over your head and you were sleeping through it, whatever else, let me have you pinpoint this. Where would you rather be than in the hand of God? You want to be in the hand of government? Say no. No. I got a good response on that one. Okay. Do you want to be in the hands of uh, your family? Do you want to be in the hands of, of your employer? Do you want to be in your hands of the church? Do you want to be in your own hands? No. Somebody said that real loud. So what would be better than being in the hand of Almighty, all-wise God? Can't get any better than that. So instead of saying, I can't figure out all the pieces, and there's pieces missing on the, my life jigsaw puzzle, bless the Lord that He has you in His hands. And He is yours. And He loves you. And He, as we'll see in a moment, approves of those who know Him. We're not winning his approval. He's given us his approval, and we're in his hand. But there's another inevitable, unchangeable truth that isn't quite so pleasant, at least at first, and that is this. We're all going to die. Now, I told you it wasn't very pleasant, and I, so I didn't lie to you, did I? Look at verse 2. It is, it is all, it's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and one for the wicked and one for the good and, uh, and for the good and the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. And the, as a good man is, so is the sinner. As a swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. Uh, 
He says there's one fate for all, whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you live righteously or sinfully. You really can't tell many times whether God loves you or God doesn't love you on the basis of what happens in the surface of life. Now, death is not something we like to talk about. Matter of fact, one very prominent book some years ago was entitled, The Last Thing We Talk About. And that is often the case. Uh, If you're going to some Christmas parties this season, and you show up, and they're talking about sports, and they're talking about cars, and they're talking about guns, or talking about mechanics, whatever, and you say, let's talk about funerals. And see exactly how well that flies at that party. They'll start calling you Dr. Doom or something cool like that. And you'll probably not get very far with that. Many people believe on the basis of of these types of texts in Ecclesiastes that Solomon was probably nearing the end of his life. Um, He comes to death many times. He's going to talk about it more in the future. He's going to end the book in one of the most fascinating passages in all the Bible on growing old and dying. Looking forward to that one? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, He is probably an old man. The Proverbs that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were written throughout his lifetime. Uh, Song of Solomon was probably written when he was a young man. And Ecclesiastes was written as he is nearing the end of life. And as uh, older people will often do, they think about death a little more. And he's considering the fate of all people, including himself, the richest and the wisest, the most powerful man perhaps on the earth at that time. And yet he too is going to die. And he wants to talk to us now about the, how we should live in light of the fact that we are going to die. And we're also in the hand of God. And so he begins to talk about that and he gives us a number of options. The first one, and this, I find this fascinating. His first option is you can live like an, an insane person. You ready for this one? Verse 3, he says, this is an evil and all that is done under the sun that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in the hearts throughout their lives, and afterwards they go to the dead. Well, what is he saying here? He's saying, look, as individuals on this planet, under the sun, he's been talking about, under the sun, no connection with God per se, as they live out their life on this planet, they begin to realize that living a good life does not necessarily guarantee good things. They may be rich, they may be not. They may be healthy, they may be sick. Living in a certain uh, good way uh, before God does not guarantee all things work out. And after a while, evil people, unsaved people, figure that out and say, if it doesn't pay to be good, if I can't bribe God, if I can't pay off God, then why should I live good? Why not live any way I want to live? And therefore they begin to live out that way. Now Solomon just in a bad mood here or what? Is that, is that why he's saying these things? I think careful observation will, deter, will show that he's exactly right. We live in a world, folks, that has gone mad. We live in a world that's gone mad. Matter of fact, to some degree, I think we're, we are seeing Romans chapter 1 unfolded right before our eyes. Romans chapter 1 says that because of their willfulness and rebelliousness against Him, that the Lord has given them over to their own sinfulness. 
And if we haven't seen that in recent times, I don't know when we've seen it throughout all of, all of history. Our world has truly gone mad. And Solomon says they've gone mad because madness is in their hearts. Our world is acting insanely because insanity is in their hearts. And their evilness is in their hearts. And, he, and he's saying this is, because, this is why they choose this option of insanity. Insanity, if I, I want to define it this way, insanity is living contrary to reality. It's not living in connection with how God made his universe. It's running against the grain of the universe that God has created. That's insanity, not living out the reality that God has created. That's what evil people do. That's what the world is doing. And we're watching this unfold before our eyes in a miraculous way. Let me throw a few things out here. I might get us kicked off YouTube. You know... Uh, who would have thought that in a country of sophisticated, educated, relatively moral people that we are slaughtering millions of babies every year? That's insane. Who, who would have thought that we would be so confused concerning gender and sexuality that we just don't even know how to talk about it anymore and people are, are totally confused? Who would have thought that, that, uh, that we would have politicians who are way up the line of, of leaders in this country, men who are wearing dresses and putting on red lipstick? We're in, we're, things have gone insane. Who would have thought that people would live immorally and, and, and be all over the... the uh, Televisions and stuff. I've watched commercials lately. Almost turned my stomach. We're, we're going insane. We're going mad because we've disconnected from God and our our fiscal policy. What's going on with our fiscal policy? Not only in our country, which is insane at times, but what about your own pocketbook? There's some very clear, realistic principles on handling finances in the Bible that would help everybody and everyone and every nation. They're totally ignored. That's running against the grain of reality. I could probably go on the rest of the day, but you don't need that. You know what I'm talking about. Our world has gone insane. It's gone mad because they've chosen that option because insanity is already in their hearts and now they're living out that insanity among us, around us. Well, that's one option. And I wish I could say well, we're talking about them. All those people out there. Nobody here. But folks, I fear that many of us are living insanely. We're not living God's way. We're not following His principles, His teachings. Uh, we're choosing to live our own way. And that is insane. And I hope if you think about that, that you will look into your own heart as necessary. We don't have to live with insanity. We start with verse 4. We can live with a lot of other things. And the first one is hope. We can live in hope. Verse 4 says this, For whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die. But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love and their hate, their zeal, have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. I don't think Solomon is addressing the insane here. He's, he's addressing people that have to live in a world of insanity. And when we live in a world of insanity... It's real easy, and I think that I've really recognized this more and more in the last three years. 
it's real easy for us to come to a place of despair where we throw up our hands and say, what's the use? That with the things around us, the things that are happening, what's the use? And to live, how do we live then in a world of despair and insanity? And yet historically, throughout all the ages, no matter how bad it is, no matter how awful the world gets, the people of God have always lived with hope. Do you realize that? We have, as the people of God, what nobody else has. We have not only hope, we have reason for hope. And that makes all the difference in the world. Solomon is not talking here now about just the average person. He's talking about the person who has committed their way to God, the person who is living under the fear of God, as he's talked about earlier. Hope, what do we have hope for? We have hope for the preparation of meeting God. We have hope for living significantly. We have hope of doing something to the glory of God. We have hope before all men of all people that will personally face Him one day. We're going to hope when we do so. A little comic strip of Peanuts once had Lucy and Linus in front of the TV, and Lucy says to Linus, Go get me a glass of water. And Linus says, Why should I do anything for you? And Lucy said, Well, when you're 75, I'll bake you a cake. He gets up and gets the water and turns to the audience and says, I, I operate better when I know I've got something to look forward to. <laughs> well, that's a silly little thing, but you know what we have to look forward to? The blessed hope. In the scriptures, in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, of all the hopes that we have, the only one is called the blessed hope. The return of Jesus Christ that will change everything. And insanity is no more. That is ours. What a precious thing to look forward to. But we can also live a life of joy. Not just of hope, but of joy. And Solomon switches directions in verse 7 as he does eight different times in this book. Eight different times he goes this direction. In verse 7, Go then. Eat the, your bread in happiness and drink your wine with cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Solomon now, as he thinks about this, he says, and keep this in the context of the book, the context of the book, that these words are not directed to everyone. They're directed to God-fearers. They're directed to those who choose to fear God and live that direction. And he says to those people, you don't have to solve all the mysteries of life. You don't have to have all the puzzle pieces. What you can do is hope in God, trust in Him, and then live for joy. Live joyfully. Now we're, not, we're surprised by this. So much so that it kind of almost, we want to figure it out. What is he trying to say? He's been talking in these negative ways. And then he says, go out and enjoy the life that God has given you. For God has approved of you. Now this is a sidebar issue, but here's, here's something I want to say. You can never earn the approval of God. For those of you that are striving so hard to, to live a life where God's going to like you and God's going to approve of you and, God, and so forth, I've got good news. He already approves of you if He saved you. You're not going to earn any more favor with God. But out of that gratitude for what He's done for you, you live for Him. When you fail, you don't lose His approval. You can't lose the love of God. He wants to bring you back to where you ought to be. When you succeed, you don't gain more approval of God. 
He already loves you infinitely. You have his approval in that sense. So what is he saying here? He is saying that we are the object of this special love, of this special grace. Right now the Holy Spirit lives in us. He's in us. He dwells in us. In eternity we will be, receive our reward. But for now he delights in those who live for him and obey him. In verse 8 he says this, Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. How interesting. Basically he's saying, come on, enjoy life. You know, have, have, a good, have a good time with your life. He's not talking mindlessly, so keep it all in context. But he says, as God's people, approved by him, in his hand, enjoy the life God gives you. Now for some Christians that's almost heresy. Enjoy life. Enjoy what God has given us. Enjoy the simple pleasures of life. Sadly for some Christians that does not compute, but it should. I read something about 20 years ago, from the, it was in the Los Angeles Times. I thought about this often. I want to read this to you. It's a lady writing. She said, my brother-in-law opened the bottom drawer of my sister's bureau and lifted out a tissue-wrapped package. This, he said, is not a slip, it's lingerie. He discarded the tissue and handed me the slip. It was exquisite silk, handmade and trimmed with cobweb of, uh, of lace. The price tag was astronomical and was still attached to the slip. He said, Jan bought, bought this the first time we went to New York, eight or nine t years ago. She never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. Well, I guess this is the occasion. And he took the slip from me and he put it on the bed along with the other clothes we were taking to the mortician. His hands lingered on the soft material for a moment and he slammed the drawer shut and he turned to me and said, don't ever save anything for a special occasion. Every day you're alive is a special occasion. I think there's some words of wisdom there. Well, why don't we put off enjoying the things that God has given us? Why don't we enjoy the life that God has provided for us? And as Solomon's talking about here, he's not talking about the big productions. He's not talking about anything that money really can buy. He's talking about the life of, of simplicity, the life of joy, of family, the life of friends, the life of love, with one another. Those are special gifts from God that you and I are to enjoy, I believe. Most of us take God too lightly and we take ourselves too seriously. And I think it, of course, should be the opposite. When we take God seriously, we realize that all is in His hands and we find the freedom to live in joy. Obedient believers, as obedient believers, we can learn to live with the simple pleasures of life. He said, well, how do I do that? You know, it's, it's difficult. Someone has said, everything I like is either fattening or sinful. And uh, we, we relate to that, I guess. But at the same time, the Lord is telling us, look. He says, put on that white gown. Enjoy the things that God has given us. They don't have, don't have to be big things. You don't have to travel to Europe. You don't have to have gigantic cars or whatever you think is going to give you happiness. None of those things really do the job. But the simple pleasures of life, as we know we're in the hand of God, are commended to us. The lady who wrote that article that I just mentioned summarizes things later. She says, I'm still thinking about his words, and they've changed my life. I'm reading more and dusting less. <laughs> now don't take that too far. Okay. 
I'm sitting on the deck and admiring the view without fussing about the weeds in the garden. I'm spending more time with my family and friends and less time in committee meetings. Whenever possible, life should be a pattern of experiences to savor, not endure. I'm trying to recognize these moments now and cherish them. Folks, I just want to encourage you, and even at this Christmas season, to recognize the precious moments God has given you. Not fixate on the things you don't have or the things you think you need. Fixate on those things that God has given you as simple pleasures of life and cherish them. Verse 9 had one more dimension. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your life, all the days of your fleeting life, which is given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. One more dimension. If you have a marriage, if you're married to someone, enjoy that person. Enjoy that marriage. Make the very most of it. I find this fascinating because Solomon never really had that. You know that, right? He had about a thousand women in his, in his life. Uh, a lot of them were by, you know, contracts with other nations and so forth, that kind of thing. He had maybe one true love in his life, and that's written in Song of Solomon. For a short period of time, he seemed to have found one true love, and that seemed to have vanished away. And therefore, he spent all of his life in denial with the very thing he wrote right here. He was too busy building empires, too busy building temples and, and palaces, too busy accumulating masses of stuff and wealth and horses and land and being powerful. He was too busy to accomplish all those things to appreciate the, one of the great gifts of life that he even pinpoints now in, in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the joy of a good marriage. Why, why do so many people who do not enjoy that marriage? You know, I, I've never married anybody yet on their, who on their wedding day thought this is going to be a mess. This is going to be crummy. You know, I, I've never had anybody turn to me and say, man, this is, this is going to be awful. I'm going to have to marry her? I'm going to have to marry him? Nobody, nobody really ever said that to me anyway. I, I don't think we'd go through if it, if it did. So why do so many marriages after a few years start to crumble? Because we get distracted with all these other things, like Solomon, instead of on the, on the precious gift that God has given us in our own life, in our own home. There's one old legend, I don't know if it's true, that said most people used to get married in June because that's, they took their yearly bath in May. And they're still smelling pretty good by June. However, they were getting a little ripe by June, and so that's why the women started carrying bouquets of flowers. I don't know if I can prove that. But I read it somewhere, so it has to be true, right? There's a poem I did read, written in 1641. It's written on a tombstone of her husband. The husband was Sir William Dyer, and the wife's name's Catherine. And she wrote this huge poem for him on the tombstone. You know, you go to the graveyard now, he liked to fish. If you get that much, you're lucky. That's, that's it. This is a massive poem. I'd like to read it to you, but I think your eyes would glaze over and you would fall out of the chairs. So I'm going to read the first line and the last. Here's the first line. You'll love this, uh, girls. My dearest dust. (laughs) 
And she closes after all the bunch of stuff. And the rest of the poem is about, why did you leave me so soon? I'm left behind. I can hardly wait to get to you. And then she closes the poem by saying this, my dear, my dearest dust, I come, I come. <laughs> now, you don't talk like that. And don't do it when you go home. Okay? Now, don't go home and say, hey, dust. Come right over here, honey. Yeah, you'll get in big trouble for that. But um, I think it's a precious little poem in a, in a sense to look at this. She says, she recognized he was a human being and she couldn't wait to get back with him. It's a precious poem. She realized the value of a marriage that God had given her. And we need to do that as well. Solomon recommends it, even though I don't think he lived it. A nicer little poem that you all know goes this way. Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made, our times are in his hand. The theologian Walt Kaiser, in his commentary on this book, said, Brother and sister, rejoice in God's good gifts, make the most of them, and ask for his ability to rightfully use them. That's a good summary. Well, we can live here in joy. Also, we can live with excellence. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or, or the grave where you're going. Uh, if you, uh, one, of the, one of the teachings all the way through the Bible, Proverbs in particular here as well, is that God does not like laziness. Matter of fact, Proverbs constantly calls such a person a sluggard. Not a very happy term at all. God wants us to make the most of life. God wants us to live with excellence. God wants to do whatever we do with all of our might. Solomon would like the adage, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And even better is the inspired word of Colossians 3.22 where Paul wrote, Whatever you do, do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. We should live our life with excellence. And then one more thing, we should live our life with wisdom. And he closes out the, book, the chapter in verse 13 to 18 speaking about living wisely under the sun. And that speaks of then in verse 13. And uh, that speaks of living on, on this planet under the sun even if God was not connected. Of course, he wants us to connect with God. Life makes no sense without connection with God. But he talks about wisdom here and three truths he lays out. Living wisely is superior living. He says in verse 14, There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. And there was found in it a poor wise man, who, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. We should understand, uh, and something you might consider, that the Old Testament term of wisdom is comparable to the New Testament discussion of Christ-likeness. Those who walk wisely are walking like Christ, in Christ-likeness. Wisdom, according to Scripture, begins with the fear of God. Remember that. It is found in the Word of God. It is only, the only way to understand the way of God, and it helps us to become more like the Son of God. Wisdom is superior living. Let me say this, if being wise, growing in wisdom and growing in Christ-likeness is not one of your goals for this next year, then you will by default become more and more insane. 
by the definition I just used a while ago, out of touch with reality. You will become more and more mad out of touch with reality. The choices are there. Grow in wisdom, grow in insanity. Solomon says wisdom is superior. Secondly, wisdom is seldom loved and seldom heeded. Okay, verse 16. At the end he says, But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, his words are not heeded. Richard DeHaan in his commentary on Ecclesiastes talk, tells about some soldiers during World War II that found a case of alcohol and they decided they were, the enemy wasn't around. They decided to all get drunk. And one of the soldiers who happened to be a Christian suggested they not do that because they don't know where the enemy might be. If they're all drunk, they'll be all killed. And he convinced the, the officer to follow his thinking and so he told the men they couldn't drink this alcohol. They got mad, of course. He took away their joy. That evening, they were attacked. They fought off the enemy pretty well with few casualties and would have all died had they been drunk. That wisdom was not appreciated, but that wisdom was necessary. Keep in mind, the wisest person who ever lived was hung on a cross. So our wisdom may not be appreciated, and finally, we must have receptive hearts to receive wisdom. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is, seldom, is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. By following the way of wisdom there, we, we go against our nature. See, our natural bent, here's what Solomon is saying, our natural bent is towards foolishness. Our natural bent in our hearts is towards insanity, not living according to the reality as God has made it. And therefore, most people would rather be bombarded by to embrace deception and lies than to live wisely. Isn't that a strange thing? That's what he's saying, though. That's why so many people are taken in by Ponzi schemes, by deception concerning moral living, by all sorts of, of uh, uh, things that are contrary to the reality of life that God has created. Because we love by nature folly. We love by nature that which is insane. And so to change that, wisdom must be a choice. We must choose to be wise and to follow that wisdom that is given to us in the Word of God. For that's the only place you're going to find it. He doesn't say here, as we close out this chapter, he doesn't say that just because you're wise that all things will be simple for you or easy. He doesn't say that at all. The appearances may be deceptive, but he says that when we stand in the favor of God, when we're in the hands of God, we are given the freedom to live as God wants us to live. Somebody wrote a book some years ago called Down, uh, Downshifting, it was written by a lady who walked down this street every day in a beautiful section of Washington, D.C., and all the houses lined up had these beautiful front porches, the kind that you find in magazines and so forth. And she walked by every day and just thought, how romantic, how beautiful these front porches were. And yet, after doing this for months, she observed something. Nobody ever sat on those front porches. 
Everybody that lived in those houses were so busy with life, so busy with their schedules, so busy with getting ahead, so busy with making money, so busy with all the things that they thought was important that nobody took the time to sit down on those beautiful front porches, read a good book, have a conversation, have a glass of, of iced tea, just enjoying life going by. Nobody did that. Because in our hearts is this insane idea that a lot of activity and a lot of getting ahead and a lot of spending our time on all this and a lot of getting our children involved in everything under the sun will bring happiness and joy and it does not. And Solomon is saying wise living is not accepted. Wise living is going against the grain of what everybody else is saying. But if you live as God wants you to live, you will live with hope, you will live with joy, you will live with excellence, and you will live with wisdom. Chris wants to know why we read that scripture a while ago. And so I'm going to make up something. <laughs> One of my favorite little Christmas songs is I Heard the Bells. That Carla sang for a new edition of that last week for us. Here, here's about, I think, the third verse. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth good will to men. But the next verse says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail, with peace on earth, good will towards men. It's probably more true than Longfellow knew when he wrote it. He probably didn't capture the whole essence of the truth there, but he was on the money. You should live in despair if there's not the hope of eternal life found in Jesus Christ who came to this earth in the incarnation, lived for us a perfect life, died on the cross, was resurrected from the dead, and is coming again at the blessed hope. You would be insane if that were not true. But it is true. Everything wraps around Jesus Christ and his glorious gift to us. If you don't know that Savior today, that one who's come and died for us, lived for us, and then died for us, if you don't know him, then you don't know what life is about. You're running against the grain of the universe. You're running against God. You're living insanely. You're not living in the wisdom God gives you. And so we encourage you, even this morning, if you do not know the Savior, that you see us today. And let us help you understand how you can know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for your word, for your truth. We just give you praise today, Father, for the coming of Jesus Christ. All the things we talked about today, all this wisdom that can be ours in place of insanity, is only true because you are true and we are in your hands. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.